0: They have a lot of free time around here. Someone should really get them something to do. Um, But if you've been with us um, this week at all, you know that we've had our VBS this week. And and we don't do this just because we're bored or because our pastors have a lot of free time. It's because we believe in sharing the joy of knowing Jesus with children. Amen? We believe in children uh, hearing the message, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Um, And we had an incredible week. In fact, if you could just stand, if you helped out with VBS in any capacity, whether it was with Erica and kind of executing things or with Wanda and the decorations or with Yolanda downtown VBS, could you just stand up really quick so we can just kind of celebrate what God has done through your life this week and how God has ministered through you? Thank you guys so much. Um, Your service was just incredible this week. There's probably about 250 kids a night, um, probably... According to me, there was probably about between 100 to 150 new parents that came just to bring their kids, uh, which is a beautiful thing. They get to see, you know, the life of our church. Um, Dave and Lisa Hammer do a wonderful job doing a tailgate party every single night where the parents get to come, uh, have some free food, have two hours worth of free day uh, childcare, which is pretty nice. Um, they just get to, you know, use all their energy dancing and running around with me. Um, and then, I think you know, they get to stay down there and get to meet some of our people, which is was a great um praise god we had several kids come to know the lord jesus as their personal savior amen it is beautiful um yeah and it was a great week it was a great week but it's not over yet it's not over yet um Six o'clock tonight is the grand finale. Um, it's our carnival and our party. Um, it's still going to go on, even if there's um, 80% chance of thunderstorms or rain tonight or whatever it is. So um, please come. Uh, if you're new to Kirby Church, this is a great place for you to get to meet other people. Um, we have to tear all of this down, unfortunately. We can't keep palm trees up. Uh, Christmas is coming, so we're going to tear them down. Um, so it's a great opportunity to serve with some of the people that have been here for a long time. If you've been at Kirby for a long time, this is a great opportunity for you to get to um, meet a lot of the new families. There's going to be so many new parents and families here tonight that are coming just because their kid wants them to come so they can get free tickets to go to, to play games so they can win a free goldfish. Okay? That's happening tonight. And if you want to come and meet new parents and new families and get to share with them about your small group or about the canoe trip or different things going on, this is a great opportunity for you. So I hope um, all of you guys will be able to come here tonight at 6 o'clock. What happened down there? That's crazy. Six o'clock tonight. Um, to kind of begin the message this morning, um, I want to kind of share with you about why I love VBS. Okay. Uh, A lot of you guys, if you're around, you get to see me kind of sweat my tail off and (laughs) lose about five pounds. I was actually nervous coming into VBS this year because I was a little out of shape. Um, Luckily, Erica and Wanda caught me early and put me on a weight training program so I could be um, to my fittest potential. And so I was able to kind of um, endure through this week. It was was a great week, but I wanted to share a little bit about why I love VBS. Um, Maybe not specifically VBS, maybe more so why I love working with kids. Kids, why I love being around children and why I love being around Kirby because Kirby believes so much in children's ministry um, we, we read in the Bible about the life of Jesus Christ and a lot of times I think when we read the gospel as we come away from reading the gospels with kind of this weird kind of uh, spacey sentimental feeling of like man Jesus is so nice <laughs> Jesus is such a nice guy. He, he had the power to heal that man, and he could have walked away, but he ended up healing him anyway. He's such a nice guy, right? I mean, do you ever, like, walk up and say, man, Jesus is so nice. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be a nice guy. Or uh, we read the story about Jesus welcoming the children and not sending them away, and we're like, oh, that's so nice. Jesus is so good with kids. Jesus is so nice. I want us to kind of uh, try to avoid that type of thinking. Because for the, for the first people that met Jesus, the first believers, they weren't very concerned with how nice Jesus was. Um, the prophets had foretold about the coming of a Savior 400 years before Jesus' birth. And that Savior would have a reign over the world that would never end. And that Savior, his, the center of his new kingdom, would be in Jerusalem. And so for the people that met Jesus whenever he was alive... Their main concern wouldn't have been, Jesus, you're so nice. Their main concern wouldn't have been, Jesus, what's this new kingdom like? Jesus, what's your new kingdom like? Jesus, I'm reading all these prophets, and and you seem to be matching up. I, I believe you're the Messiah. What's the new kingdom like? And when we read the gospel, we get a sense that Jesus is answering their question. But the disciples and the hearers of Jesus for the first time, they don't really get it. And so you can imagine them kind of comparing notes like, all right, virgin birth, check. Yeah, you got that. Yeah, okay. Um, town of, city of David. You, yep, yep, check, check. Um, uh, from the line of David. Yep, okay, check. All right, this is good. as is Messiah. Jesus, what's the kingdom like? And Jesus is like, um, all right, guys, the kingdom is like a poor woman who had ten coins, lost one of them, rips her house apart to find that one coin. That's what the kingdom's like. And you can kind of imagine blank expressions over their face like, what, 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 that's what the kingdom's like? Did you get that? Ask him again, ask him again. Jesus, what's the kingdom like? Jesus is like, the kingdom's like a gardener who throws out a bunch of seed on different types of terrain, and only the seed that falls on good soil sprouts up and makes good fruit. That's what the kingdom's like. And you can imagine just like the frustration, they're like, Jesus, Jesus, I believe in you, but what's the kingdom like? That you're not making very much sense. In? And he's like, okay, Jesus. Jesus says, all right, the kingdom is like the kingdom's like the kingdom's like a, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, leaves the ninety-nine to go find the one. That's what the kingdom's like. And they're like, all right, Jesus, I don't understand. There's Rome. There's the emperor. Do do we need to like start a campaign? What's your political platform? You know, Jesus, what's the kingdom like? And there was one time. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, there's one time where they're, you know, they're itching to find out what the kingdom's like. Jesus, what's the kingdom like? And while they're listening to him, there's children just running around everywhere. And you can kind of imagine, you know, the disciples kind of dragging some by their legs and some of the kids are like hanging on their back. And they're like, Jesus, what's the kingdom like? And, And get all these kids out of here. Why are all these kids out of here? Get off me, kid. And Jesus is like, wait, 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 wait. This is what the kingdom's like. The, kingdom, the kingdom's like a bunch of kids. Don't, don't send them away. Let them come to me. This is what the kingdom's like. reason I love VBS is because I get to jump around and dance and sweat my tail off, but every night I get to look into 250 pairs of eyes, and every night I get to look out and see a glimpse of the kingdom. And it's beautiful. Now, I'm not a very sentimental a spacey, you know, flighty person. Um, In a a few years, I'll finish my doctorate in philosophy. Um, I'm well-read in other religions and um, in atheist literature. I'm not a very spacey, flighty person. But when I look out and I see the joy and the celebration in the eyes of 250 kids, I believe. I believe in the kingdom. And you're looking at a person with a lot of doubts. I have a lot of doubts, I do. Maybe you're like that too. I have doubts about God. I have doubts about the way church is done, especially in America. I have doubts about life. The reason I love VBS is I get to come here and hang out with a bunch of kids and all I know is that they help me believe. If you get to hang out with kids, if you get to work with kids, if you get to come to VBS and jump around and dance, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Okay? That's why I love VBS. That's not the message. That's just a little five-minute introduction we're going to get into in just a second. Could you go ahead and pray with me? Lord God, I thank you so much for the joy of your kingdom. God, I thank you so much that the Christian life isn't dead and stale and boring, but it's full of life and vitality and joy and celebration. I thank you so much for this week and everybody who came to serve. I thank you for the people being able to come tonight. I pray that they'll just hear your truth. But now I pray that we'll be able to focus in and hear um, your word. As we kind of retell a little bit um, of our, what our kids learned this week, may we get something to, to learn about how you are Lord of Lords, how you are greater than all, how you are greater than all the powers and authority of this world that you laid dead and powerless by your work on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, if you want to follow along, I'm in Exodus chapter 7. I'm in Exodus chapter 7. I want to focus on the story and the lesson that our kids heard this week. Um, It was Thursday night. Thursday night, our kids got to learn about the Passover. Okay, if you go outside, there's a few decorations where the theme's the Passover. The Passover, you know, really happened at the end of ten plagues, all right? Most of you guys have heard the story of the ten plagues of Egypt. But if you haven't heard the story, let me just give you a brief uh, run through. The children of Israel, God's people, had been slaves. They had been brutally oppressed by the empire of Egypt for over 400 years. That's longer than America has been a nation, okay? So imagine a group of people who for 400 years, all that they had known about themselves was the, is that they were slaves to the powers and the authorities and gods of Egypt. That's all that they had known about themselves for 400 years. And so God calls out from this oppression a leader named Moses. And he calls out Moses to lead his people out of slavery and bondage. And so Moses slash Charlton Heston goes up to Pharaoh and says, hey, let my people go. Let my people go. And Pharaoh obviously says no. And so the next several chapters, beginning in chapter 7, going through um, chapter 12, is a series of 10 plagues. Now, a lot of times we read... Um, This story, and I think a lot of times we misread this and think of it as 10 tries or 10 attempts of God. Like God tried nine times to, you know, break Pharaoh's will and convince the Egyptians to let the Israelites go. And then finally on the 10th time, you know, God got it right. You know, Charlton Heston said the right words and they let him go. Okay. All right, we need, to kind of not, we need to kind of unlearn that, not think of that uh, as what's going on here. We need to think of these not as ten tries, but as ten deliberate acts of God. Ten deliberate acts of God to be able to show to his people that he is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. All right, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Um, But I want to kind of walk through each plague, each of the ten plagues, and show you how it correlates with specific God's of Egyptian you know, mythology and religion. All right, Some of you guys may have seen this before, but I want to walk through it really quick because I think it's very important. Because what I think God is doing is not just 10 tries. I think that God is calling out for himself his own people. And in order for God to call out for himself his own people, he needed to show his people that the powers and the authorities and gods of Egypt that had held his people captive for over 400 years were now dead Dead and powerless and had no more authority over his people anymore okay all right and so um so there's 10 plagues and I'll just name them off really quick the nile turned into blood the Nile turned into blood. The next plague was there was a swarm of frogs. The next plague, that the, the dust of the earth turned into gnats. The next plague, there was a swarm of flies. Second The fifth plague, all the livestock died. The next plague, um, where am I at? Um, there was an epidemic of, of boils and sores. Um, then hail and uh, fire rained down from heaven. There was a swarm of locusts. The ninth plague, these guys are looking at each other. There was darkness for three days straight. Literally no one in the kingdom of egypt could see the israelites could none of the people in egypt could Um, and then the 10th plague that's not listed there is the passover now what i want us to go through is how we can go through each of these plagues and see what deities and powers and authorities in the kingdom of egypt god is saying look look my people i'm stronger than them i'm greater than them i have power they do not I am more powerful than the gods that are holding you captive. And so we're going to walk through these, okay? shouldn't take too long. All right. I got a nice little chart. took me forever. Here we go. Nile turns into blood, all right? This is found in Exodus chapter 7. The middle column shows all the different uh, locations and chapters. If you want to look this up later, I can send you this link. Um, The Nile was the life source of the kingdom of, of Egypt. The whole empire existed because of the Nile. I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of Egypt, but the, the pyramids aren't exactly, you know, landing on grassy meadows, okay? It, Egypt is a desert. It's a wasteland. There, there's nothing there except that there's a Nile River, one of the largest rivers in the world, runs through the eastern side of Egypt. And this, this river was worshipped by the Egyptians, It was worshipped. It was a deity. But not only was the Nile River worshipped, there was deities associated with the Nile River. And you may have palm trees and banners in the way, but I'll I'll say these out. Um, Khnum was the guardian of the river's source. Hapi was the spirit of the Nile. Osiris was one of the top three deities in the Egyptian religion. Um, He was the god of the underworld, and it was said that the river Nile was his bloodstream. See how in this one plague... Three of Egypt's main deities, three of Egypt's main sources for their frame of mind and their worldview were defeated. God says, look, my people, I'm calling you out for myself. These guys, they don't have any power over you. I'm going to show you this. I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. All right. The next plague, there's a swarm of frogs that come. Hapi is the spirit of the Nile. She's also one of the two goddesses that has a, a frog as her head. Okay? The, you know If you see pictures, you can Google pictures right now. She has a frog as her head. All right? Hapi and Heget are goddesses of fertility. All right? There's actually a lot of incredible writing and literature and irony going on when you read the story of the plagues. Because Egypt, uh, Exodus 8 1 through 15 describes the, um, the frogs coming out of the riverbed, jumping up into the houses, into the bedroom, and jumping on the beds. It describes that. Now, does that sound funny or ironic whenever you understand that Hapi and Haget are goddesses of fertility? you see that? All right. This isn't a coincidence. This isn't a coincidence at all. These are deliberate acts of God for God to show his people that he is stronger and has more authority and more power than the gods of Egypt. All right. The third plague. Uh, Depending on your translation or which story you read, it says that literally the dust of the ground turns into either lice or gnats or mosquitoes, okay? And for the dust of the ground to turn into insects that get on people's nerves and make people unclean, uh, the Bible describes them as getting in people's eyes and lungs and mouth. Um, This would have been a great um, indictment and defeat to Geb, who was the god of the earth and the soil. It would also have been a great defeat and detriment to the UAE who were the pure ones they were the high priests they were the ones that were at the time trying to recreate the two previous miracles and they were successful but by the third plague they weren't able to recreate any of the other miracles Have you seen the prince of egypt it kind of lays this out a little bit but on the third plague they weren't they were powerless god shows that i'm more powerful than their gods all right we'll keep going swarm of flies is the fourth plague this would have uh, been seen as a defeat to the god Uechchich. Um I won't say that again because I think I would curse. Um, that's the fly god. If you look at a picture of him, he literally has a fly for his head. He was understood as the protector of Egypt. Um, didn't protect Egypt during this plague, so he would have been seen as defeated. Um, number, plague number five is the death of the livestock. This would have been a uh, defeat to the um, god Ptah who was the god of creation. Hathor was the goddess of love and beauty and joy. Um, Ironically, the goddess of love and beauty and joy has a cow for her head. Um, and so that would have been seen as, you know, Hathor being defeated. Menavis was a sacred bull who was worshipped in Memphis, further down the river from the capital. Amun-Ra was the king of the gods, was the king of all the gods of Egypt. And he was worshipped usually through the sacrifices or some sort of uh, manipulation of bulls and cows. So all of these gods would have been seen as defeated and offended and um Conquered through just this one plague. Um, Six is the epidemic of boils. Um, Sekhmet was the god of epidemics. Serapis, the god of healing. Amenhotep, one of the other main three deities, was the god of of medicine. All of them, God saying, "Look, I'm stronger. I'm better. I'm greater." They have no power. Keep going. All right, fire and hail. Nut was the goddess of the sky. Horus was the god of the sky. Shu was god of the wind. No power, no power. Yahweh's greater, Jehovah's greater. Um, number eight, plague number eight was a horde of locusts. Uh, this would have been Emirate, the goddess of the crops. All the crops are defeated. Where are you at, Emirate? Seth, god of the crops. All the crops have been eaten. All the crops are gone. What happened? Nepri, the god of grain. All the grains, God. Jehovah's is better. Um, Theramidus was the god of harvest. There's no more harvest. Where are you at? Um, Serapi was the protector from locusts. His one job was to protect Egypt from locusts. Not doing his job. Yahweh's showing that he's better. The last two plagues the last two plagues would have been the greatest blow to the Egyptian worldview. Um, up until this point, they were mostly in and out of kind of, you know, lesser deeds. But Amun-Ra was the chief god of Egypt. He was a sun god. And so for the sun god to be powerless against the ninth plague when God literally takes away all light for three days straight— would have proven to the Egyptians and to the Israelites that their chief deity was powerless against Yahweh. And Mute was the queen. She was the wife of Amun-Ra. Khons was... Actually, that's supposed to be something else. Uh, Thus was Amun-Ra and Mute's son. He was the god of the moon. The moon didn't shine for three days. God's saying, look, I'm stronger. I'm better. Pharaoh and Amun-Ra were the chief powers. They were the chief religious and political authorities of of the Egyptian empire. The Passover, the death of Pharaoh's firstborn. He's saying, I'm stronger. God's saying, I'm stronger. Now, I go through that long list of things not to say, hey, look what I've learned. Or A lot of you guys have probably learned these things. I don't go through to say, hey, look, this is kind of a cool little diagram. Hey, isn't Scripture neat? I go through this to be able to show you that God is calling out a people for himself and in order for God, Yahweh, Jehovah, to be able to claim sole authority for his people. To be able to say, hey, I alone have all authority over you. The gods of Egypt are powerless. He had to go through systematically and say, look, I'm stronger than Osiris. Look, I'm stronger than Ra. Look, I'm stronger than Pharaoh. I've defeated them all. I've shown you physically that I am greater. Come follow me. I'm going to take you to a land of milk and honey. It's going to be great. But at the end of each plague... At the end of each day, there was a choice that Israel had to make. And to us it seems pretty simple. But we haven't lived over 400 years under the authority and power and gods of Egypt that's enslaving us. At least least not like they have. They had a choice to make. They had to say, listen, we can either follow after and accept what the gods of Egypt say about us... Even though these gods of Egypt are seeming to be proved powerless by our God, or we can follow into freedom and life after the all-powerful God, Yahweh, who is one by one saying, look, these gods are dead. These gods are powerless. They've been ruling over you for so long, but I'm showing you right now that you, my people, are not under them anymore. And in a similar way, in a similar way, the early church Christians, the first believers who would have first heard Jesus' message, had a similar, pretty simple choice. Just like the Israelites had to either choose the God Yahweh that was calling them, or the powers and authorities of the gods of rulers of that day, so the early church Christians either had to say, Hey, I'm either following after Lord Jesus. I'm following after Lord Caesar. Caesar and Rome, that was the main power of that day. That was the main authority. See, all throughout the Roman Empire, there was statues. There was monuments. You've heard the phrase in history, all roads lead to Rome. All along those roads were mile markers. And those mile markers would have slogans and phrases and giant statues that would read, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the son of God. They would say, There is no other name under heaven and earth wherefore by which you may be saved except Caesar. Sound familiar? It should. If you read the gospel, that should sound familiar because the early church Christians were taking a very deliberate stand against the powers and authorities and gods of that day. They were saying, Wait a second, we're not disciples of Lord Caesar, we're disciples of Lord Jesus. We don't accept the authority and positions and power that Caesar is putting over us. No, we're saying we're disciples of Lord Jesus. We're saying Caesar's not Lord. Caesar's not the Son of God. There's no other name by which you can be saved. Not Caesar, it's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only name that saves. Saying we're not accepting the authority and power and position of Lord Caesar. We're accepting it of Lord Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. We talked about this a little bit last time whenever I was here. Uh, Being a disciple doesn't mean um, just accepting certain beliefs. It doesn't mean just, you know, coming to certain conclusions about God in your head. Being a disciple doesn't mean just uh, saying a few prayers and singing a few songs. Uh, Being a disciple has everything to do with who has authority in your life. Being a disciple of Jesus is accepting that Jesus alone has all authority in heaven and earth. It's accepting that Jesus Christ alone has full authority over your life. It's saying that I'm going to deny all other authorities ultimate position in my life, and that I'm going to open myself up to Jesus' shaping of who I am, what I value, what I want out of life. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's not a set of opinions or beliefs. It's saying, who has authority in your life? Who has authority in your life? Recognizing that, I'll say this again, recognizing that he alone has all authority in heaven and earth. It means denying all other authorities' ultimate position in your life. And it means opening yourself up to Jesus' shaping of who you are, what you value, what you want out of life. That's what being a disciple is. And that's what, the, that's what the early church Christians were saying. They're saying, I don't accept the authority of Caesar on my life. I accept the position and authority and what Jesus says about me because I'm his disciple. Because Caesar isn't Lord. Amen? The good news of the gospel is that Caesar is not Lord. That Jesus is Lord. Because if Jesus is not Lord, then for them, Caesar was Lord. It was as simple as that. For the early church Christians, if Jesus is not Lord, then Caesar is Lord. If Jesus is not Lord, then the signs that you know, are all throughout the empire, then those are right. We just accept it. If Jesus is not Lord, then Caesar is Lord. But Caesar is a Lord that brings peace, but he does it through violence. He, like Egypt, he enslaves the majority of the population. Caesar's the Lord that uses his power to pile up bodies, to destroy all other nations. Caesar's the Lord who persecutes the church, who executes the martyrs. That's what Caesar is if he's Lord. But if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. It was as simple as that. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is in fact Lord and Caesar is not. This is the Lord Jesus who wept at the tomb of a friend, who spent time with the poor, Who spent time with children? These weren't things that were done in the ancient world. It just didn't make sense to the way that they saw things. But if, if Jesus is Lord, then all this makes sense. Jesus spent times with children, He heals the sick. He freed his friends from demonic oppression. He ate with sinners and criminals. And we learn in Colossians that this Lord Jesus, it was through him that all the beauty of the earth were created. It was his imagination that conceived the deep seas, the mountains, the stars, the galaxies, birds and fish and all animals, human beings. It was his imagination, Lord Jesus. It was his imagination and creation that brought all this into being this Lord this Lord loves us enough that he died for us. That he died for us. Why? Why? Because just like God, Jehovah... As he wanted to call out his people from slavery and bondage by showing them, plague by plague, that all the authorities and powers and gods of this world that had held them captive were defeated, powerless, and dead. So Lord Jesus, through his work on the cross, is showing you, his people, that all the powers and authorities and gods of this world that have held us captive for so long are dead. They have no power and authority over us anymore. If that's what Jesus is to us, if that's who Jesus is as Lord, then their power and authority is dead. Look at Colossians 2, verse 15. That God has stripped the spiritual rulers and powers of their authority. With the cross, he won the victory and showed the world that they were what? Powerless. That they were powerless. Powerless. Because if Jesus is really living, he's Lord. He's Lord, that's it. He's Lord of everything. He's shown us his people, just like God, Yahweh, was calling for himself, his people, and at the same time showing the powers that have oppressed them were dead. Jesus says, I'm calling you to myself, and at the same time, through my work on the cross, I'm showing you that the powers and gods and authorities of this world that have held you back are dead. They're powerless. Because if Jesus is really living, then he's Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar's not. And if Jesus is Lord, then death is not Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then hell is not Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then death, sin, suffering, oppression, bondage, hell, evil, hate, violence, greed, abandonment, fear, doubt, you name it, those aren't Lord. They have no more power over us anymore by the work of Jesus' Christ and his resurrection. They have no more power anymore. Amen? Amen. They have no more power over us anymore because of the work of the cross. He says they're defeated. They're gone. I'm Lord. Jesus says it's me. It's not Caesar. It's not Egypt. It's not omnipotent. It's not Rah. It's not Pharaoh. It's me. I'm Lord. Come follow me. Come follow me in the newness of life. I want to take you to a place where you feel fulfilled. I want to take you to a place where you feel free. Come follow me. I've defeated all these other gods. I've shown you that they're powerless, that they're defeated, that they're dead. Come follow me. Some of you may look at me and say, Blake, I, I don't know if I believe that. Uh, I look around and I see so much oppression, so much suffering, so much neglect and abandonment, so much sin. How can you say to me that Jesus is Lord? and said all of these powers are defeated when this is really all I see. My simple answer would be, come and hang out with kids tonight. My long answer, though, I would love to share with you. I would love to hear your story. I would love to hear your life and listen to your questions. Pastor Joe will be in the back in the lobby, and he would love to hear your questions and thoughts. But I would tell to you what I tell my friends that are Muslims and atheists and Buddhists. I would tell them that there is only hope in this life through the name of Jesus. That because of the resurrection, because we believe that Jesus is alive, that we have hope. That there's a new day coming. That your future can be better than your past. That we believe in a new kingdom where all this will be wiped away. And we can celebrate a newness of life. But if you're a Christian and you believe this stuff, I have to ask you a question Are we living lives that profess the power and the resurrection of Lord Jesus, or are we living lives that look to resurrect the very powers that he defeated on a cross? Do you understand what I'm saying? Are we living lives that's living into this beautiful story of Jesus redeeming us from our sins, taking us back from the oppressive nature of sin and destruction and evil in the world? Are we living into that life, in the life of his resurrection? Or are we kind of taking a little bit back for ourselves, saying, Jesus, I know you're Lord, I believe in the cross, but I think there's some stuff in this sinful life that I wouldn't mind having that live and have a little bit more power over me again. Just like the Israelites, we have a choice. We have a choice. At the end of each plague, they had a choice. Am I going to follow into what the gods and authorities that are enslaving me say about me? Or am I going to follow after what God Jehovah, who is proving these gods powerless, am I going to follow into this new freedom that he's calling me to? It's as simple as that are we going to choose? Are we going to choose to live lives that bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or are we going to choose to live lives that are trying to resurrect the powers that he defeated and said, look, they're dead. They don't have power over you anymore. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your victory. I thank you that you have conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave.